0: Hey, welcome back to Well, That's Interesting. The, I hope this is as magical as it sounds, edition. (laughs) Today is (laughs) episode 156, A Fence is Speeding Up Kangaroo Evolution and Great White Sharks Might Have Best Friends. My friends, are you as excited as I am today? If not, please just rewind like five seconds and listen to that title one more time. In the first half of the show, we'll be talking about a recent discovery focusing on everyone's favorite, absurdly muscular creature, the red kangaroo. Now, I cannot, I cannot help myself here. I have to dive right the fuck in and drop some number bombs on you. You need to hear a few astounding facts about the world's largest marsupial right now, even in the intro. Are you ready for this? Okay, born about the size of a cherry, after a wee 33 day gestation period, males can easily tower over most humans as they grow to about 5 foot 10 and over 100 pounds. <laughs> it's very big. Now, please imagine this large animal just hauling ass because they can hop away at speeds of up to 43 miles per hour and can cruise a cool 35. With each leap, they cover 25 feet at a height of about six feet off the ground. What? (laughs) I had no idea. Their obscene musculature provides that power. Now, despite even knowing what a red kangaroo looks like, back in 2021, Tom McKay of Gizmodo reported that 14%, that's more than 10, that's 14% of American men believe they can overpower this creature. (laughs) Please, if you know someone who thinks this way and you still text, do let them know, quote, in a battle royale for most powerful animal, a red kangaroo might take the martial arts belt, thanks to a bone-shattering kick that delivers 759 pounds of force. Evolution has nudged wild animals to hone their blows, bites, and brute strength for survival. End quote. That was from Sarah Chodish, of PopSci.com, and Sarah is absolutely fucking right there. An animal with this kind of dynamic strength evolves in such a way to avoid a predator, like a dingo, for example. So what if, I don't know, say, a fence were in the way between the two? You heard me, a fence. Turns out a very big fence is having an unintended consequence on a population of red kangaroos. Now, what fence, what changes exactly, and how this was all found out shall be revealed. Then after the break, everyone's favorite misunderstood finned creature, the great white. In fact, we're going to focus on two of them. Two recently tagged great white sharks are causing a bit of a stir in the marine sciences field. Now, granted, not much is known about this species' social behavior. Mm -hmm. Usually when they're seen, they're alone. And if they do have company, it's usually a few remora, which is um, a tiny fish whose front dorsal fin acts like a suction cup. I'm sure we've all seen videos of these like hanger-ons. They're usually (laughs) attached to the underbelly of a shark and it's all to nab some sweet, sweet scraps of prey left behind after the shark feeds. But um, that's about it. And because of this, researchers have thought they're mostly solitary. That is about to change. What these two sharks have shown the world with their behavior together might make you say, "aw." Yeah, I personally said "aw," like audibly a thousand times, so (laughs) we will get into it. In the meantime, I'm Jill Chacha, and if this is your first time listening, welcome to the flock, my equally affectionate business goose. To begin, I'm going to ask you to imagine a place where you can enjoy some brekkie while watching some good, good bush telly. Yes, you heard me. Um, that last one will be much clearer once I tell you we're imagining Australia. It's it's, it's Australia. Oh, my God. Um, there it is, the continent in all her glory. Now, if you will, please point to the middle of the southern coast. Thank you. You're still thinking about Bush telly, aren't you? I know, me too. Now, point to the southern, middle of the southern coast. Move your finger slightly north. Okay, now east and just keep going. Trust me, just keep going, keep going, keep going past the corner of New South Wales. Yep, we're into Queensland right now. You're doing fantastic and keep going until you nearly hit the middle of the East Coast. My friends, we just traveled 3,488 miles or 5,614 kilometers alongside the world's longest fence. And for my fellow historically challenged Americans, you may be wondering why in the holy hell a fence like that needed to be built. That is a great question. Long story short, no pun intended, in the 1860s and 1870s, introduced slash invasive rabbit populations began to spread rapidly across Southern Australia, just decimating crops and native plant life. So to fix this human-made whoopsie-daisy with every hammer that could be found, a fence, was born, and by 1884, a hefty, record-breaking barrier stood. Now, we must ask ourselves, did it work? No, of course not, but by this time, more sheep farms were established in the southeast, i.e. New South Wales and southern Queensland, and concern had pivoted to dingoes who made an easy meal of lambs and such. So, the government hitched up its pants and said, shut your cake hole, I know what can fix this. Say it with me now. More fence, that's right. So by 1930, an estimated 32,000 kilometers of dog netting in Queensland alone was being used on top of rabbit fences. And all this info was brought to us by the wiki. Now, we must ask ourselves, did this work? Kinda. I know, surprised? Me too. It kinda worked. It kinda did. The dingo population in the southeast of Australia plummeted. So, should we pat ourselves on the back and say, oh shit, that was a close one. I'm glad that's over. No, no, for you see my friends, offense fence with good intentions, just like the introduction of rabbits, created a whole other set of whoopsie daisies, which is coincidentally my favorite type of daisy. And to help explain why, I've employed AI. Yes, I I know, just stick with me here. I employed an AI to generate an Australian accent to help explain. I have no idea what this sounds like. I just put the text in and we're gonna learn together uh, how well AI can do an Australian accent. So to explain, here's this fake thing.
1: (laughs) Built with a combination of wire mesh and multi-strand electric fence, the six-foot-tall barrier was supposed to be the ultimate deterrent to the sheep-eating wild dogs that killed millions of Australian animals every year. But although it began as a success, the dingo fence has seen major unintended consequences that have negatively impacted the surrounding environment and even the sheep themselves. Because the southeastern side of the fence is blocked off from the predatory dingoes, prey such as rabbits, kangaroos, and emus have seen increased numbers leading to overgrazing on the sheep's pasture and disturbing the ecological balance. In addition to these problems, the fence hasn't been entirely effective at stopping dingoes in the first place. Holes in the wire mesh have allowed a sizable amount of the dogs to crawl through each year. The sheep may be safer, but the dingo fence reminds us that the long-term consequences of manipulating the environment can sometimes be doggone unpredictable.
0: Okay. That was all right, that was all right. And uh, that voice was brought to you by a site called Uberduck and that info and pun was brought to you by atlasobscura.com. So (laughs) my friends, my hungry business goose, here we are, literally looking at a very unique situation. Just like you, Dr. Vera Weisbecker of Flinders University and her colleague, Dr. Rex Mitchell had a thought this fence is the perfect opportunity to observe something called trophic cascades in action now what the hell is that don't worry i've got you it's a fancy way of saying what happens when there's an addition or removal of top predators this could dramatically alter a food chain an entire ecosystem or prey animals themselves now Initially, Vera and Rex were interested in examining whether differences in levels of competition and food abundance caused by the fence-slash-separation led to changes in skull shapes of southern roos compared to northern roos, Uh, southern roos being the ones protected from dingoes and northern roos exposed to way, way, way more. Turns out, no. (laughs) Not at all. No changes were detected in the skulls. So, everybody go home. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, this is one of those studies where researchers were looking at one thing, but totally stumbled upon a completely different discovery. Quote, Red kangaroos are one of the dingo's favorite prey species, so we were not surprised to find fewer females and younger animals where there are more dingoes around, said Associate Professor Dr. Vera Weisberger to cimex.org. However, we did not expect to see that, on average, young animals inside the fence. Were lighter and smaller than those outside the fence. End quote. Oh my, my delicate business goose, remember the staggering facts at the top of the show? Well, that immense power had been crafted over 15 million years. Yes my friends, kangaroos appeared about 15 million years ago, evolving into the creature we know today. You know, the one with a kick that delivers 500 and, oh, sorry, 759 pounds of force. (laughs) And that's to protect it from a pack of wild dingoes. Well, hold on to your cheeks and please pick a number from one to a hundred. Go ahead, just, just pick one. In how many rude generations do you think it would take to alter this craftsmanship that was 15 million years. Okay, pick a number from one to a hundred. Okay, you've got it? All right, hold on to it. Quote, the team says it's also surprising that the dingo-proof fence could affect kangaroo growth patterns during the relatively short time of its existence. Dr. Retz, sorry, Dr. Rex Mitchell says, in the area we investigated, the dingo-proof fence was in disrepair until 50 years ago are about 17 kangaroo generations, end quote, from cymex.org. Congratulations to those who picked 17, (laughs) or close to it. In sum, my friends, it is possible that this fence is slowing the rate at which roos need to beef up to protect themselves, because they no longer need to. And it may have happened in that short period of time. Yeah, I know. I know what you may be thinking. Maybe, let's, hold on now, maybe Ruse on the southern side of the fence had less food. And that's what's, and that's what happened. Uh, and what's the upside to not delivering a kick that has 759 pounds of force? I mean, isn't that awesome? Well, those are great thoughts, my business goose. Let's, let's get into it. Quote, co-author Dr. Frederic Saltre, which... I'm just going to assume I totally nailed, uh, used satellite-based analysis to evaluate the impact of vegetation cover on these striking differences to ensure the differences in growth rate was simply not related to higher food availability outside the fence. But the results were also surprising. There might, in fact, have been more food available to the slower-growing kangaroos inside the fence, meaning they were really taking their time to grow up, he told Symex.org. Taking your time to grow up, my friends, has some awesome benefits. Vera told Stephen Luntz of IFL Science that there are reasons not to grow quickly. For example, you can develop better immune systems if you redirect energy there. End quote. Co-author Professor Corey Bradshaw added, Having to put the whole body's resources into growth, particularly when food is scarce, can mean that other areas of the body are compromised. An animal might be in poorer health or have fewer offspring, for example. End quote. Who knows, my genius business goose. Maybe with all this leisure time, they may become smarter and take over. Fingers crossed. But seriously, Dr. Vera believes if the fence remains, the northern and southern roos could eventually become separate species that would have difficulty interbreeding, which is wild. Now, I say if the fence remains because foxes another prey animal of the dingo, are overpopulating the south and causing extensive damage going unchecked. So there's building pressure to remove the fence entirely. In the meantime, researchers are continuing to study these dramatic and swift changes. If the ruse begin to speak, you'll hear it here first. After the break, what's more adorable than a talking kangaroo? How about a pair of great white sharks that just can't quit each other? I know, I get just my heart, my heart, my heart. Stay tuned. And we're back. We are so back. And my friends, I'd like to introduce a nonprofit whose recent work has caused quite a stir. But don't worry. Don't worry. This is a feel good story you didn't know you needed. Please join me, will you, in Park City, Utah? And although Utah is completely landlocked, OSearch, based in Park City, is anything but. Let's get into it. From their website, osearch.org, quote, Osearch is a global nonprofit organization conducting unprecedented research on our ocean's giants in order to help scientists collect previously unattainable data in the ocean. Our mission is to accelerate the ocean's return to balance and abundance through fearless innovations in critical scientific research, education, Outreach and policy using unique collaborations of individuals and organizations in the U.S. and abroad. Oh, God. End quote. That's, <laughs> That's a hefty mission statement. But, my friends, Osearch is totally living up to it. As of writing these notes on August 23rd, over 16 years, they've been on 45 exhibitions, tagged 437 animals, worked with 200 scientists all on one big-ass boat. According to the Washington Post, they turned their focus to sharks of the Atlantic back in 2012 and developed a streamlined catch, tag, and release process that goes a little something like this, scientists catch white sharks and collect their blood, mucus, feces, and urine samples. They measure their bodies and eyes and give ultrasound exams to adult females. Then they place three tracking devices on the sharks. In their abdomen, on their skin, and dorsal fin. Within 20 minutes, scientists are able to release the sharks back into the ocean. End quote. From Kyle Melneck of The Post. God damn, 20 minutes? That's really impressive. And some recent data, picked up by a pair of tags, is even more extraordinary. Join me, will you, now along the coast of Georgia... In the United States in the, <laughs> in the United States, and it's December 2022. We're on that big-ass boat with Robert Huter, the chief scientist over at OSearch, and an excited crew just doing what they love, mostly waiting for a great white shark to come along. In one particular week, they hit it big, snagging not one but two beauties, two males named Simon and Jekyll. Quote, Simon, who is nine and a half feet long and 434 pounds, was caught near St. Simon's Island on December 4th. Jekyll was caught five days later near Jekyll Island and was measured to be eight foot eight and 395 pounds. Huter said the two sharks are between 10 and 15 years old. End quote. From the Washington Post. Those, those are some big teenagers, my friends. <laughs> Anyway, the pair were tagged as usual and sent on their merry way. And at the time, no one thought twice about the brief period between catching Simon and Jekyll. Maybe it was just a happy coincidence. Well, fast forward to the big day when those tags began to ping. In April 2023, these same two sharks were swimming up the East Coast, passing the mind-bogglingly named Ocracoke in North Carolina, hold on, okra coke? <laughs> I think I'm pronouncing that right. Is it a combination of okra and a soft drink? Which maybe is not what they meant, but wow, that's southern. Any, anyway, again, uh, back to the sharks, who are traveling north, <laughs> passing North Carolina, Virginia Beach, and then Atlantic City, New Jersey at similar times. My friends, Osearch has no previous data of sharks swimming basically in tandem, in fucking pairs. These supposedly solitary creatures were as close as 10 miles and only as far apart as 100 miles. And hold on to your charming butts. It gets even better. By July 4th, they traveled in this manner all the fucking way to Nova Scotia, Canada, for a total of 6,437 kilometers, or about 4,000 miles miles together that is a road trip and they did it together and according to their tags they went on a swimming tour of Canada's waters and I'm really hoping this was their honeymoon they passed (laughs) they passed Halifax Nova Scotia's capital and meandered through the Gulf of St. Lawrence on July 18th Jekyll's tracking device reported him on Quebec's eastern coast near Chandler and guess what Simon was also there on the same day. And if this sounds like a big deal, it is. Quote, white sharks are already more complex than we used to think they are, Huter told the Washington Post. Now this adds a whole new element of a sort of familial and social component to migration. End quote. So, my teary-eyed business goose, you may be thinking, this is awesome and adorable, but... Do we really know why? Like, why are they so, like, fin to fin? Well, that's, that's a great question. One that Huter is currently focusing on. As we speak, their blood samples are being analyzed to determine if there's any relation. It's possible they could be siblings. And if so, that turns another shark theory on its head. In the womb, pups tend to exhibit cannibalism, where, with one pup remaining victorious. So maybe Simon and Jekyll will show it's not all that vicious. If they're not related, if they're not related, history will probably just label them as traveling companions. But we all know these are some gay sharks. <laughs> if you'd like to track Simon and Jekyll in real time, you sure can. Head on over to osearch.org. That's O-C-E-A-R-C-H.org slash tracker slash detail, slash Simon, or Jekyll. There's an awesome, really awesome interactive map showing location, dates, and their entire route. It's just fucking heartwarming. Speaking of which, thank you for listening, rating, subscribing, telling your friends about how kangaroos are gonna, like, take over one day because of a fence. And um, tell them about great white sharks having best friends. It's just, yeah, it's a total game changer. They're just traveling together somewhere in the world right now as we speak. And as for me, I would travel with anyone over at Airwave Media, the podcast network to which WTI belongs. If you love this show, you'll love the other podcasts in this family. And please, stay interesting.